Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener is brought to you with support from Bunnings Warehouse. Hi there and welcome to Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. I'm Jo McCarroll, the editor of New Zealand Gardener, and with me is Rachel Clare, editor of our e-zine Get Growing. We're already at episode three, Rachel, can you believe it? I can't believe it. I'm so proud to have made it this far. If you've made it this far with Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener, why not get in touch? We'd love to hear what's happening in your garden or answer any questions that you have. Send us an email at mailbox at nzgardener.co.nz. Now, what have you been doing in your garden this weekend, Jo? Well, actually, I thought I had enough tomatoes in, but I happened to be at the garden centre. And I found a new tomato that's called Jo. Oh, Wow. So I had to put a few of those in. And I honestly think, Rachel, could it be named after me? Do you think you're being a little narcissistic? No. Also a plant. Narcissist. (laughs) (laughs) No, because I already have in my kitchen an orchid that's named after me. But that is actually really named after you, and you just tried to drop that into this conversation. I worked the whole conversation (laughs) around to the fact orchid, Joanna Rose, is in my kitchen. Totally constructed. Do you know I gave that orchid to my mother and she killed it? What would Freud say? What's the opposite of an Oedipal complex? (laughs) What are you doing in your garden? Well, I've been turning junk into funk and hopefully not junk into junk because our children's trampoline has turned into a heap of rust. They don't make them like they made them in the 80s. I did a ballet school for years on my trampoline. But anyway, it's completely rusted. So we have been working out a way to repurpose it in the garden. What are you going to do? We are going to take the outer frame, so it comes in its two half circles, and we have turned that into a bean frame. And so we've made like an archway. So imagine like two half rainbows and then we're putting chicken wire on it and I'm going to grow passion fruit and beans up it. A rusty metal climbable structure. That just sounds like an occupational safety and health my, nightmare. My partner's quite freaked out and the kids wanted to turn it into a treehouse and Jacob's worried that it just looks like junk but I'm fine about it. I think it's going to look amazing when it's covered and I will feel like I'm doing my bit for the planet. So also in my garden this week, um, I think I'm going to put some more chilies and capsicums in. It's a really good time to plant chilies and capsicums, and it's worth being aware that these crops are real heat lovers. It's a good rule of thumb to wait until you can see your tomatoes are actively growing. Um, if your tomatoes are just sort of sitting there and not doing much, don't put your chilies and your peppers in, because if they have a cold start in life, it'll really, really hold them up. Um, Both chilies and capsicums are really productive plants, and so they need a bit of support, especially capsicums, because the big and quite heavy fruit can really break those brittle stems. So stake them at planting time and um, tie those fruit-bearing branches onto a support and uh, keep the water up, especially if you've got them in pots. Once they start um, flowering and setting fruit, feed them maybe every fortnight or so with a liquid fertiliser. But remember, you can use your tomato liquid fertiliser for your capsicums too, because they're just another fruiting plant. You grow a lot of chilies, don't you? I am a chili obsessive, and I particularly like growing super, super hot chilies. Now, if you want to try growing really hot chilies, um, normally if you're going to get really into it, you have to grow from seed because you have to source your seed from like really intense men with beards who live up north. <laughs> but one um, chili that you can buy at the seedling stage, which is quite a hot chili, is the Buchalokia. Um, now, the, ch- the hotness of chilies is ranked according to a ranking system called the Scoville scale. And every chili is given what's called a Scoville heat unit. So like 
uh, Tabasco might be about 100,000 Scoville heat units, and Bucciolokia is about a million. And actually in India, they use Bucciolokia to make a paste to repel the wild elephants. I didn't know you were such a chilli nerd. I'm a total chilli nerd, and I really recommend you give it a go if you like hot chillies or your garden's a bit overrun with wild elephants right now. I am also growing a heat lover. One you can't eat, which are dahlias. I love dahlias, and you've got a little bit of time to get them in. You can kind of usually start planting them after the last frosts, and I'd keep planting them up until the beginning of December. I've got a box of dormant tubers and I'm doing some really cool colours. I'm going for a combination of pretty pinks and burgundies. So I've got cactus dahlia, blackjack and a hot pink pom-pom called rococo. Now, dahlias don't require too much. You don't need to overthink them. Just give them an open, sunny position with a little shelter from wind, a compost and rich soil that is free draining. But you don't want it too rich because they don't like that. They'll get soft, sappy growth that breaks. Now, when you plant them, make sure you put in a stake because they can grow up to two metres high. Do you like dahlias? I love them and I'll tell you a technique I've seen in someone else's garden is to grow them up through a frame and that way you can avoid the ugly stakes that can ruin your flower border. That's a good idea and I read that you can also grow them in pots and so you can grow them till they're maybe like 20 or 30 centimetres high and that way you're not putting your spade through them accidentally when you're planting other things or weeding your garden. Nice. Yeah. I'm also putting in some more basil. Now, that's another heat lover, and it is finally warm enough to sow basil direct outside. Or you can put um, seedlings in now, too. Um, You want to leave about maybe 15 centimetres between your plants. Um, And if you overcrowd it, if you're sowing from seed, don't worry about it. Just pull out the plants when you're thinning and just use them as a microgreen. I put in that large leaf basil, um, Genevieve's Giant, which is brilliant for pesto. It's got an amazing flavour. But it's not good if you want to make that caprese salad because the leaves are just too big. You have to tear them up and then they brown off a bit at the edges. And you need to buy your basil at the garden centre, don't you? Because lots of people try to put those hydroponically grown ones from the supermarket in the ground and they're just too soft, aren't they? The they just the haven't had the exposure to real life, those hydroponic herbs. They also tend to be really crowded in a pot, so you've got numerous seedlings in one um, tiny, small uh, pot. And so they're, they're here for a good time, not a long time. Well, I've been growing cucurbits. I've planted a whole lot in one raised bed because cucurbits all like a really rich soil. And also my seven-year-old managed to buy about eight types of cucurbits when we're at the garden centre. So we have been growing watermelons. Now, I have never successfully grown them. So I'm hoping that this year is the year. And I'm going to try and give them lots of compost throughout the growing season and also potassium-rich fertilisers. I love growing new things. And the kids and I have also been growing mushrooms in our garage. So, to get some top tips, I talk to an expert mushroom grower. Mushroom growing is a serious matter, so I'm going to take it straight to the top and talk to Tim Thornywell, who's been growing mushrooms since 1979 and sells mushroom growing kit sets through his business, Mushroom Gourmet. Now, Tim, you started off as a teacher, but obviously children sent you into a dark, small cupboard and you began growing mushrooms. How did you get into it? (laughs) Fair comment. Um, I guess I've always been a bit of a forager. Even as a kid back in Britain, we were always looking for blackberries and um, what else did we look for? There was hazelnuts in the hedgerows and uh, obviously the wild mushrooms that were there to be gathered by the bucket load. And... Yeah, just sort of looking for wild food was where it all started from, really an awareness that there is an abundance out there and fungi seem pretty interesting. So uh, 
So when a, a flatmate of mine said a friend of his had some uh, chicken sheds out in Kungu that might be available to try growing mushrooms in, somehow it just seemed like a great idea. So the three of us all sort of got in together, and uh, another friend was uh, the uh, zookeeper at the Auckland Zoo, and cool. he was able to smuggle out elephant manure for us. So we thought, well, we're onto something big here. So, elephant uh, that, elephant that's mushrooms. How it <laughs> Now, there are heaps of different kinds of mushrooms. Can you just tell us, basically, what is a mushroom? Well, a mushroom is really the fruit body of a fungus. So usually we don't see the actual living part of a fungus because it's underground. So the living part is like the apple tree is to the apples. So underground we have the mycelium or the roots of the mushroom, or Mm -hmm. they may be living inside a tree. So some mushrooms, like the oyster and shiitake, they will grow out of logs or grow out of a tree. Others grow out of the soil, so that's your field mushrooms and your ink caps and your parasol mushrooms and your morels. Um, there, there really is a wide range of mushrooms for, for many different environments. What types of mushrooms do you sell at Mushroom Gourmet? Well, our favourite really would be the oyster mushroom. So that's the, we have a pink one and a grey one. And oh, after that, I guess the next best one would be probably the common button or field mushroom. And shiitake would be close on its heels, I think. Shiitake is a little bit trickier in that you need to find a, a bit of a tree or a log from an oak or a poplar or tower or beach and then drill holes in it and put the spore into the holes in the, in, yeah, into the holes in the log. So it doesn't suit everybody, whereas when we provide kits, then everything's pretty much in the pack and uh, you just have to cut holes or water and the, the work is done and you just have to watch and enjoy and then eat, of course. So you normally gather mushrooms in autumn. Why is that? Mushrooms are actually growing through most of the year unless it's very cold or very hot. And they respond particularly to changes in the weather and the idea that autumn is a good time for them to send out their spores is what really triggers the whole action of the fruit body popping up through the ground if it's a button mushroom. And the the conditions at that stage, of course, in autumn are moist and it's still warm enough that the spores can do a little bit of germination in the soil and then they pretty much overwinter in a dormant state until spring and then they start growing all the way through spring uh, through the summer, they slow down if it gets too dry, and then, as I say, once that autumn coolness starts to come in the nights and then a bit of moisture, off they go, and all the goodness that they've gathered over the summer suddenly comes forth as the fruit body. And your kits can be grown all year round, though, can't they? You don't need to wait till autumn. Why is that? Well, we do play a few tricks on the mushroom, and um, the way the kits are designed does sort of um, simulate some of the things that happen in nature, so... Um, I guess um, I guess the mushroom doesn't mind being tricked too much because it gets some pretty pretty good free food in exchange. And how high maintenance is it growing your own mushrooms? Do you have to do a lot of work? No. Well, that's the thing I've spent 30 years doing, trying to make it easy, clean, tidy, and devoid of all the smelly things that some people associate with uh, mushrooms. There's, there's nothing like that involved in any of our kits at all. So... Yep, it's um, just a matter of, you know, a short period of time just to set things up. Usually it means putting a bit of water into the growing medium and then um, putting the spores in, which we call spawn because that's actually like a tissue culture of the mushroom. Spawn. 
And then, uh, yeah, and then the, the mushroom, you can enjoy seeing the mushroom roots grow through the all the bits and pieces in the bag. So it, it's a really interesting experience that, that kids really like. And um, many home gardeners think, oh, my gosh, there's a whole new dimension to gardening here. Tell me about your favourite mushroom and how you like cooking it. Well, I would have to say it is the oyster mushroom. Uh, it's a favourite because it grows so easily, but the flavours can be really, really good too for homegrown um, mushrooms. It's very hard to beat. Um, and what I like to do with it is I like to tear it into strips. It, it, it rips quite beautifully into uh, strips that go very well in a stir fry. Great on a pizza and as a topping on cheese on toast or something, they're good too, and an omelette, they're fantastic. So an oyster mushroom, though, will only be a good flavor if the growing medium is good. Mm-hmm. You can you can eat with all mushrooms, in fact. If you have a, uh, all, all plants, if you have a poor growing medium, it does affect the flavor of the fruit that you subsequently pick. And um, so you can go from a very lovely full, full-on flavor like a sort of a blue cheesy intensity to something really insipid. And, um, you know, it's an interesting journey, actually, not just beginning to grow them, but then to improve on, on the texture and the flavor and the keeping qualities. Not so important keeping qualities for home growers, but um, certainly the commercial growers are always interested in how can you keep these mushrooms longer so that they stay better in the shops. And if you buy a kit, how long does it take to get mushrooms? The quickest kit is definitely the oyster mushroom and... I think the record was 11 days that somebody had, but normally I would expect between 21 and 28 days. It is very much weather dependent, so if it's the height of summer, it's going to really speed through the growing medium quickly and start the fruiting stage quite quickly. If it's winter and you've got it in a cool garage or something, maybe 4 to 6 degrees um, overnight and you know under 10 in the day, well, that's going to be the longer side. It could even be up to six weeks, but you don't have to worry with mushrooms. All the food is in the bag. The mushroom is going to eat it all, and it is going to fruit, and it pretty much always um, produces the same weight of mushrooms. So we like to work on the idea that if the growing medium weighed a kilogram to start with when it was dry, you're going to pick a kilogram of mushrooms off it. And, once and compared you... to other forms of gardening, that's extremely prolific. Um, and, of course, the good thing is with mushroom growing medium is that once it's grown mushrooms, it's also ideal for growing plants so you can get a second crop multitasking mushrooms okay tim thank you so much for your time today it's been really great talking to you about mushrooms great nice chatting if you want to find out more about growing mushrooms or order one of tim's kits visit mushroomgourmet.co.nz if you're new to gardening you might know what you want to grow but you might not know what to put where So here is my masterclass on planning your edible garden. To begin with, different plants have different soil requirements. So if you have the space, it pays to group different edible crops together according to their needs. For example, leafy crops such as lettuces and silver beet need lots of nitrogen, whereas too much nitrogen produces foliage at the expense of fruit and flowers and other crops like tomatoes and strawberries. Once they develop flowers, these plants do better with a potassium-rich fertiliser. As a general guide, grow beans, peas and brassicas together, growing climbing beans up a teepee or up a frame at the back of a bed so they don't shade the brassicas. Plant herbs in heat-loving solanacea, such as tomatoes, eggplants, chilies, and capsicums together. Potatoes are also solanacea, but these should be grown with your other root crops, such as carrots, radishes, beetroot and kumara. 
Carrots, radishes and beets will end up bent and twisted if they get too much compost, so work the soil to a fine tilth. You can plant edible alliums such as garlic and shallots alongside root crops too. The cucurbit clan, melons, zucchinis, pumpkins and cucumbers, keep good company with corn as they both like manure-rich soil. So plant them together and pop lettuces into any gaps because they'll appreciate a bit of shade. Rotate these plant groups to different beds every year to prevent a build-up of pests and diseases in the soil and so you don't strip the soil of any type of nutrient. Permanent crops like rhubarb, asparagus and strawberries can be grown together as these can be grown for quite a few years. And if you don't have the space or only want to grow three types of vegetables, just remember that friends give each other space too. Grow similar sized plants together, for example lettuces, spinach, strawberries, bok choy, capsicums, chilies, leeks and onions make nice compact neighbours, whereas plants such as pumpkins, tomatoes and sweet corn spread themselves out or grow tall. And don't forget to plant lots of flowers in your garden to bring in the good guys that will pollinate your crops and bring in the beneficial bugs that will predate on the bad bugs like ladybirds, which will eat aphids. Grow flowers such as marigolds, alyssum, borage, buckwheat and phacelia. Some flowers, such as the spider flower cleome, attract the bad bugs like green veggie bugs, acting as a decoy and distracting them away from your tender crops. Ultimately, when it comes to planning your garden, you do you. But remember that diversity is better than a monoculture in every situation. Our masterclasses will help you grow something together with Bunnings Warehouse. And now we better answer some questions, Rachel, because I have a question right here from John Richards, who says, can he grow an avocado tree from an avocado stone? Joe, this is a perennial question. We get it so often because we all love avocados. New Zealand's crazy about avocados. And the price at times. So the answer, John, is that you can, but why would you, really? Because, of course, avocados are not what's called true to type. The plant that grows from the seed is not exactly the same as the parent plant. And it takes an avocado maybe five years or more to produce fruit. So you could put all that effort into growing it and they do get quite large and then you'll find that you get this watery tasting avocado and the tree may only produce a couple of fruit. So unless you've got heaps of space or you really like experimenting, it's probably really not worth it. I would go and buy a grafted avocado tree. You've got some, don't you, Joe? I haven't. I'm going to put some in along um, the boundary at my place. But yes, I will be growing named and grafted avocado plants because that is, in fact, a much better route to success. You can try sprouting the seed in an avocado. It's very likely to sprout. It's very, very easy to germinate. Um, And you'll end up with a plant. You can use that as like a lush pot plant inside. You can even put it in the garden. But like Rachel says, these trees get huge. So really, it's a bit of a pointless exercise in futility, unlikely to end up with any breakfast. Yep. A cool growing exercise, cool for a pot plant, but if you really want a bowl full of guacamole, get a grafted one. So I'm just going to have a chat to Carl Freeman, who runs Freeman's Farms in New Plymouth that I visited last week as part of the Taranaki Garden Festival. This is a little market garden surrounding an ex-state house on a quarter-acre block uh, where Carl lives with his wife Katie and their toddler son, River. Hi, Carl. How are you? Good, thank you. Nice to talk. Um, So can you just describe your garden for me? Yeah, so we've got, like you said, an old state house. 
um, and we grow vegetables everywhere. Um, we've got 55 metre beds, 26 fruit trees, three chickens, some bees, and yeah, we sell vegetables at the Taranaki Farmers Market each Sunday. Um, and lucky enough to make my living off it. So this, when you say veggies everywhere, there is literally veggies growing every single where on your section. Yeah, yeah. Um, trying to fit in everything, you know, once you've filled in all the obvious spaces and you, you keep going, oh, I could fit a bit there. Oh, I could fit another tree there. So, you know, it's getting close to full, but there's always a little bit extra you can fit in. Couldn't agree more. Always room for one more plant, maybe another fruit tree. Was anything growing on the property when you and Katie bought it? Well, there'd been a few keen gardeners that had obviously owned it in the past. Um, so there was a little hot house on the property, but, you know, it was um, 97% grass. Um, and, you know, the lemon tree and the fajoa tree was there already. And did you just think that was a wasted opportunity? Uh, well, what happened is we were in Australia and um, we had visited New Plymouth a few times. My wife's mum is here. And, yeah, there we'd become aware of this street um, Glen Park Avenue, where a lot of people were buying up the houses there because they're cheap and they've got big direct state houses. Um, so buying them up because they've got big backyards and they were cheap and starting to plant big permaculture gardens and, you know, doing things like a shared meal once a week. So we were quite interested in this street. But, um, yeah, my wife was pregnant in Australia and um, feeling the urge to nest. So we saw this property, someone shared it and said, oh, this lovely property's Available. Had our friend that's a um, permaculture garden designer go and have a look. Um, and she gave it the tick of approval for sun and slope and wind and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, so we bought it online. And then when we decided to move over, set about getting rid of the grass. So is your garden a traditional permaculture garden, Carl? Yeah, well, um, in Australia, I was lucky enough to know David Holmgren, who was one of the co originators of permaculture. Um, but my garden, I wouldn't. I don't necessarily prescribe to one gardening style or anything like that. I like to get a little bit of everything and use my common sense. So, yeah, I've learned so much from um, permaculture teachers and permaculture books, but I wouldn't call myself a permaculturalist or a permaculture garden. I think, you know, gardening and being in tune with nature um, is age-old wisdom. A hundred percent. And yeah. the best way to learn it is doing it. Yeah, exactly. Um you know, I'm one of those people that um, makes mistakes. I'm hoping to be able to create more resources and training. And, you know, we post videos on our Facebook and stuff like that um, for Freeman Farm of how to hopefully not make the same mistakes I did. It'd be a bit more efficient if people can just um, have more success quicker. Um, that's part of teaching, isn't it? Teaching people from the mistakes you've made. Would there be any... Um, small ideas or techniques or methods that you think would be particularly useful to a, another keen home gardener? Yeah, really good question. Um, we do no-dig gardening um, at our property. So uh, we use a garden fork to loosen up the subsoil when needed and first developing garden beds and stuff, but we're not inverting the soil. There's um, so much life in that soil, uh, microbial, biological worms, and they've all got their certain place in the ecosystem and below the soil, and that's actually what um, brings healthy health to plants and you know faster growth, more production. Um, so leaving that soil intact is so important. And then we're just putting a lot of compost right on the top. Um, and yeah, the rain and the worms and the life bring that compost down to where it's needed. So it's almost like mulching a thick mulch layer of 10 to 20 centimetres of compost on top, and you're going to save yourself so much trouble because there's no weeding, 
the plants are healthier, all that. So that's the big one of the big takeaways I was giving to home gardeners is get a big truckload of compost delivered um, into your driveway. Don't go and buy bag by bag. It's a lot cheaper um, a truckload and um, liberally apply it because you'll be a lot happier gardener. And so what was the soil like? Obviously, Taranaki is famous for its incredible soil. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'd been gardening in Australia and um, it's very different from there. So, But on our house, it was a sloping property and they'd levelled it out at some stage and scraped off all the topsoil. So when we got there, we're just gardening on the subsoil. But, you know, the Taranaki soil is so beautiful that um, we were able to get into production pretty quickly, just putting lots of um, good organic inputs on and lots a big, thick layer of compost. Um, and, you know, two and a half years later and we've got a lot of production there. Do you have any idea what your production is off that quarter acre cull in terms yeah, of weight? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't um, spend the time weighing all the vegetables, um, but we say that we would be able to produce, you know, the bulk of about 30 families' vegetables, um, especially with all their leafy greens and stuff like that. So, yeah, you know, I'm making a living, um, you know, grossing on average about $1,000 a week. And, yeah, I do have one other small plot in a community garden, 200 square metre plot there. But yeah, it's amazing the production you can get off a quarter acre because that's our total land in between the two gardens, a quarter acre. And you've just had visitors through as part of the Garden Festival. What was the reaction from people? Oh, yeah, it's so nice to see people being inspired. And yeah, the good thing about what we're doing is bringing a lot of um, systems and um, professionalism of um, market gardening and bring it down into the urban farm scale that I think it inspires the home gardener to improve their systems, become more efficient, produce more food. So much of it is transferable into the home garden. And there's also, I think, a lot of people going, oh, maybe I should quit my day job and start growing vegetables in my backyard as well. (laughs) You're trying to do yourself out of business. You want everyone just to start growing their own. Yeah, I'd love to see a world where there's lots of urban farms and delivering veggie boxes to their very closest neighbours or, you know, Maybe we can transform the corner store dairy and actually have healthy vegetables and a local baker and all that kind of stuff there. Oh, what a, what a wonderful future. Yeah, yeah. You can always dream. Thanks so much for your time, Carl. Now, Carl is passionate about spreading the word around urban farming. So if you'd like more information about this movement, do check out his website, farmnextdoor.org. Wherever your garden grows, grow something with Bunnings. So we'd better, quickly before we finish up, get to murder in the garden. Dun dun! Rachel, we can add the sound effects later. I really like my sound effects. It's real gritty. So I'm going to tell you what's killing your passion fruit because I get asked that all the time. People are always killing passion fruit vines. Passion killer. I love writing passion fruit headlines because we um, answer these questions quite often. And there are I, a lot of puns. Yeah. Passion killer. How do I get more passion? Give me a passion fruit question anytime. <laughs> how do you get more passion in your life, Rachel, if that's not too personal a question? Seaweed, Joe. The answer is seaweed. And Lots of it. That might work for you. <laughs> and I'm not going to ask any more questions about that. But I would say that if you have a passion fruit vine and you want it to do really well for you, the answer is to pile on that magic organic matter because these plants are what is called gross feeders. That means they can, they're just 
greedy. You want to feed them and feed them and feed them. So um, They have a voracious appetite. They're greedy plants. So add organic matter to the soil whenever the opportunity presents itself. Mulch around the bottom, leaving a little ring so that the mulch doesn't touch the stem. Um, And maybe use a slow-release fertiliser that's designed for a fruiting plant, like a citrus fertiliser. Feed the passion. Feed the passion, indeed. Um, Passion fruit are also prey to all sorts of pests. And the one you'll be seeing now is the juvenile form of the passion vine hopper, which is the fluffy bum, that little jumping insect that's just too quick for you to catch it. They're quite cute though, but terrible. They're terrible, terrible, terrible insects. And you want to get on top of the juvenile population so you don't have the adults to deal with later in the season. You could perhaps try on organic spraying oil, but the real thing you can do to get rid of fluffy bums is um, to look for the eggs in autumn because you can see those on the little twigs of your passion fruit and destroy those so you don't have the fluffy bums next year. And remember, the passion fruit are relatively short-lived. The passion will die after three or four years. Passion will not last forever, but gardening and a love of gardening really is something that sees you through your whole life and will indeed last all the way until next week when Rachel and I will be back in the garden and we hope you join us for Get Growing with New Zealand Gardener. Ka kite.